Well, today we are continuing the series, Be Real, Because Fake is Exhausting. Have you enjoyed the series so far? I know for me it has been such life-giving messages, stuff I've needed to hear. Uh, today it is my assignment to talk to you on the subject of humility. So if, if, if all church family, all of you online, all of our campuses, if you could look at your neighbor and look at your neighbor and say, say, be humble. Come on, look at your other neighbor and say, be humble. Now, I think I'm well qualified to talk about the subject of humility uh, simply due to the fact of the amount of times I've been humiliated in my life. Uh, my wife and I, we celebrate 10 years of marriage next month, and we are, uh, come on, you can clap for that. I know some of you, you got... You're double on that. It's okay. We, are, we got four kids, so 10 years of marriage and four kids. Uh, God's doing something great in our family. Um, but I can remember years back, my wife and I, we were dating, and so we were not yet married. And um, I'm from South Louisiana. What that means is we don't know a whole lot, but we have a lot of fun. And so we are always looking for an opportunity to have a festival. We're always looking for an opportunity to celebrate something. Uh, and we make everything a competition. This year, for our, this, this uh, current situ our situation was Easter, wrapped around my wife and I. We were, we were dating, and it was Easter season, and this was no different. Uh, in Cajun culture, uh, there is a term that, that I'm about to share with you to bring you into uh, my, my upbringing culture. And this term is called um, pake. Pake is a game that we play in the Easter time. Now, many of you are familiar with the tradition of boiling eggs and dyeing eggs for Easter, and kids may do it, and it's fun. But, but back home, we do it as adults, and we have a competition out of it. The competition goes like this. So you have an opponent. You have two people. One person holds the egg like this, and then the striker, if you will, will take the egg and paquet the top of the egg. Now, the goal is for you to walk away from the, uh, from the, the match with your egg unblemished. So if you crack the opponent's egg, you win. Now the plus side is you get two sides of the egg, and so you have a second shot. Well, this particular year, my wife's cousin decided he was going to change the game. And so when we traditionally bring chicken eggs to the game, he decided that this year he was going to bring an ostrich egg to the game. Now I don't know if you've ever seen an ostrich egg. It is significantly bigger than a chicken egg. Um, the exterior of it, the shell of it, is way thicker than one of a chicken egg. And so that particular day, man, he destroyed everybody. We didn't stand a chance. He, we, we, our eggs were breaking when we were striking, and he was crushing our eggs when he was striking us. And so I walked away defeated. Then we walked into the backyard, and we decided that we were going to have a friendly family game of baseball. Her cousin decides that he's going to bring the ostrich egg to the game of baseball. And so he looks at me and he says this. He says, Bo, he said, I bet you cannot hit this, this egg out of the field. Now, any normal person in that situation would have read the undertones and saw that this was a setup. <laughs> but given the season, I was trying to impress my, wife, my, my future wife, that time girlfriend, and her family and let them know that, hey, hey, I'm a man. <laughs> and so I had two, two goals in that moment. One, I wanted to get this egg out of this galaxy. I wanted to hit it so far that it would not come back. And second, I was going to swing the bat as hard as I could. And if I, if I missed the egg, I was going to rupture a disc in trying. <laughs> so, man, he backs up and 
to add insult to it, he says, hey, I'm going to underhand pitch it to you. So, man, he tosses it to me. I close my eyes. I grip my teeth. I swung as hard as I could. What was supposed to be a boiled egg was not boiled, people. The egg was alive and well. I had eggshell all over my hair. I had egg yolk all over my, there was more egg liquid in this egg than is humanly possible. I walked away. I had to get in my car. I had to drive all the way to my house. I had to change my clothes and I had to come back to the family gathering. What's worse is those who didn't witness the actual incident began to ask me questions. Bo, why did you change your clothes? But thankfully today that it's not my encounter with humiliation that we talk on the subject of humility, but rather we talk through the lens of what James gives us in his book. James, the brother of Jesus. James, the Bible says that James didn't even believe that Jesus was God. This speaks to the level of humility that Jesus operated in. Come on, I don't know about you, but me, if I'm Jesus and I'm a child, I'm having fun with it. Uh, you, parents, you would, you would agree with that. Kids are playing out in the yard. They come inside for dinner, and the parents will say, hey, you want to go back outside and play? You have to eat all your food. So James and Jesus are there eating their food, and Jesus is wrapping, it up, wrapping up his food, and James is doing the same. And just as James would go to take his last bite, Jesus multiplies his food and walks outside. He's like, hey, hey, I, I'm done eating, bro. Whenever you're done, just come out and meet me. Or maybe they're out having fun and, and mom has to go to a doctor's appointment and mom says, hey, if you're good at the doctor's office, you'll get a Coke with your dinner tonight. Yes. <laughs> so Jesus and James, they were good. They get to dinner time and they open the Coke and Jesus is drinking and James is doing the same thing and James is drinking. And just as he notices as he pops the, the Coke and he drinks it, he notices his Coke is turning into water. And Jesus is trying to, gotcha. <laughs> Wouldn't dream of going fishing with Jesus. Not going to happen. But Jesus' humiliation, or Jesus' humility, rather, taught James some, less, James some lessons. And James goes on to write. When James introduces himself as the narrator, or as the, as the author of this book, James could have used a series of different things. He could have used what Paul described him in Galatians. Paul describes James as a pillar of the church. What a massive, con what a massive compliment. James could have used, hey, I'm a pastor and the leader of the church of Jerusalem. But he didn't do that. He could have done what other people that had common names in the Bible did. He could have said, I am James, son of. But he didn't do that. James simply states in James 1, chapter 1, he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to write and, and gives us some practical applications on what humility looks like. In James chapter 4, verse 6, James says, but he, Jesus, gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In the scripture, we see a couple things. We see a characteristic of God, God's grace. And we see two different people. We see the proud person and we see the humble person. And then we see God's reaction to both of those people. We see pride and we, we understand pride to be Satan's original sin. And the truth is, it's the core of all of our sins. Pride is a pattern of this world. James 4.4 4 says that a friend of this world chooses to be an enemy of God. Pride causes us to focus more on ourselves and less on God. Pride causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Proverbs 16.5 says this about pride. It says, the Lord detests all of the proud of heart. Be sure of this. 
they will not go unpunished. What is God's posture towards pride? He opposes pride. Now understand this today, that when God opposes you, that is not a good thing. How I many you know God against you is not a good thing? It's as though you are by yourself and an entire army is coming towards you. And God is way more powerful than an army. God is against the pride in you. He's not against the person. He's against the pride. Why? Because he doesn't want to see you succeed. He doesn't want to see me succeed in destroying ourselves. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride goes before destruction. But then we see a second person. We see a humble person, a person that walks in humility. A humble person realizes that it's not about me. Humility is not low self-esteem, but it's an accurate view of ourselves. Humility acknowledges that my complete dependence is on God. The byproduct of humility is not just grace, the scripture says, but more grace, he says in James. He gives more grace to the humble. What could be better than more grace? Undeserved favor. Grace is when you get what you didn't deserve. Grace is when you know what you couldn't have known. Grace is grace to do things that you could not have done. God's characteristic is to give more grace. God's posture towards the proud person is, hey, I oppose the pride. But God's posture towards the humble person is, I grant you favor. I give favor to those who walk in humility. For the next couple moments, I want to talk about the benefits that we get by walking in real humility. Number one is this. When you walk in real humility, you look like Jesus. You look like Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 says this. In your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very, nature, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. I'm here today to tell you something, to let, to let us all aware of something, that when we walk in humility, our relationships look different. When we walk in humility, our thoughts reflect the thoughts of Christ. When we walk in humility, we serve the way that Jesus served. We serve our family different. We serve our classmates different. We serve our coworkers different. We serve our authorities different. Why? Because we're operating with the, hum the humility that Christ has given to us. Jesus humbly laid down his rights. He didn't have to, but he did. Jesus was obedient to the most extreme of circumstances when he didn't have to. Why? Because Jesus walked with humility. There's a story of a young boy. There was a, a thunderstorm going on outside. And as soon as he heard the, the, the thunder and saw the lightning, he was frightened. And he said, he said Mommy, I, I'm scared. And the mom kind of yelled across the hall, it's okay, buddy. Just close your eyes and, and go to bed. Everything will be fine. A little while later, the thunder increased. And the boy said again, Mommy, I'm, I'm still scared. And the mom said, it's okay, son. Just, just close your eyes and pray and ask God to give you peace and it'll be okay. The boy waited a few moments longer and this time instead of yelling for mom, he found himself on the bedside of mom and, and gave us one of, the, one of those parents rude interruptions like, oh, 
And he said, uh, Mommy, can, can I get in bed with you and Daddy? Mom, out of frustration, holds back her words. And, and before she could speak, the boy says, I know that Jesus hears my prayers. And I know he'll protect me. But tonight, I need Jesus with skin on it. <laughs> but isn't that so true? In a world full of fake identity, in a world full of fake popularity, fake tans, fake smiles, fake, fake bank, whatever, it is, in a world full of fake, we need to be real. We need to be Jesus with skin on it. Number two, when you walk in real humility, you have a teachable spirit. Now, I know I'm new here, and, and this may be the first time that, that we interact together in this setting, and uh, I don't typically like to do this, but, but just for, for, for sake of illustration for a moment, I, I'm going to brag on myself for just a little bit. Um, so if you just bear with me through the illustration. Uh, most kids go through uh, elementary stages, and they're just working on their motor skills, their developmental skills, and learning how to tie their shoes, or learning how to how to put their clothes on, they learn how to brush their teeth, and then they get to school and they learn how to count, and they learn their ABCs, and, and they're learning little things and how to interact with other human beings and different things like that. And once you get to the middle school age frame, you really start to see kind of where the child's potential is. Well, wow, this is a really quick learner, or oh, wow, he, he or she is really fast, she is brilliant. Like, like you start to see the developmental stage come through, and you understand, okay, so these are the areas we want to harness. By the time I got to seventh grade, it had been consecutive years running where I was the smartest kid in the class. I was the quickest learner. Um, at any project the teacher got, I was the best in the class at getting it done. Seventh grade rolled around, I jumped into eighth grade and the same thing. Many critics or people opposing would say, hey, when he gets into high school, things are going to change. And ninth grade year, it, it actually increased. I went from just not only being the best in class, but I went from being the best in class, also being the best looking in class. <laughs> I'm not sure why it's funny. <laughs> Man, I was top of my class. I, I was doing great. I was the fastest learner. I was, I was voted most likely to succeed. I was the best athlete. I was the most popular. Tenth grade, same thing. And then something dramatically happened when I, when I stepped into the 11th grade year. I went from being homeschooled to going to a real school <laughs> my 11th grade year. I went from being the top of my class to right smack in the middle. Isn't that funny how humility works, though? Like, you be in a room all by yourself, and you say, I am the most humble person in the world, as long as I'm not around people. I am the most teachable person in the world, as long as I'm not around other people. And then what happens? Life happens. Circumstances happen. Situations happen. And then oftentimes, if we're honest, humility tends to take a back seat to circumstances, and we, and we don't rely on God. We rely on our own intuition, and we say, well, this happened last time, so it's probably going to happen again this time. And God's saying, no, hey, listen, when you walk in real humility, you have a teachable spirit. Why is it important to learn? Not because of your deficiencies, because, but because of God's promises. God's promises in his word are truth for you. 
And when God says, hey, if you will continue to learn the promises I have for your life, you will thrive. You will grow. You will develop into the man, the woman, the promises that God has for you. Why? Because of his promises. We've got to stay teachable. And as long as we carry humility and say, God, I want to walk in real humility, God says, okay, you're going to continue to be teachable. Albert Einstein says it like this. He says, once you stop learning, you start dying. I can't help but think that's the same principle when it comes to our spiritual life. The moment we stop learning, we start declining. And Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to know this. When I created you, I created you with your purpose, not someone else's purpose. God is not into carbon copies. God is into making all things new. When he looks at your life, he says new beginnings, new mercies every morning, a new creation. Why? Because God is into new. He's not into recycling. God doesn't recycle people. God says, hey, I have a new thing for you. I want you to continue to be teachable. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. His word is both alive and active. Both alive and active. What does that mean? If we're all honest here today, some of us, we can say, hey, man, there's times where I'm alive, but I'm not active. There's times where I'm active, but I'm not active in purpose. And so it, 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 even though I'm active, it's not really alive in my purpose. And God is saying, hey, if you understand that the, the word of God, my word for you is both alive and active. His, his, his word is alive and we activate it by being real and knowing that we need to learn. Learning benefits us and God has a plan for us. Number three, when you walk in real humility, you serve others. You serve others. Jesus did in John chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, he said this. So, so Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and he wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I know there's a lot of things that have changed over the last 2,000 years when Jesus was on this, on this earth. But, but feet still stink. Feet stunk back then, and, and they still stink today. Uh, probably more so back then because the disciples and Jesus were walking the same path as horses and donkeys and camels. They didn't have sidewalks. And so when Jesus is serving the disciples, he's going through a pretty rigorous process. He, he's washing some pretty dirty feet. Jesus is teaching us, hey, I want you to learn how to serve i never forget in August of 2005, one of the greatest natural disasters to ever hit America landed in my state. Hurricane Katrina devastated millions of people across the south region. Even though it affected the area I lived in, it did not affect it near as bad as it did the southern region of Louisiana. And so we had a choice. Are we going to do our own stuff? Are we going to fix our own situation? Are we going to serve other people? What I know to be true about serving is this, is that when you, look, when, when you look for a serving opportunity, you will find it. But so oftentimes, myself included, like we go through life and we're looking, looking at my steps, my journey, my promotion, my next thing, what's, what's next. And God's saying, hey, I've got all that in, under control. Can you just look up and let's serve other people? If you live long enough, you know that devastation happens. It just happens. 
I remember serving in that abandoned grocery store parking lot where we partnered with several organizations and cars lined up as they come in to get perishables and food and water and, and toiletries. Why? Because everything had been stripped away from them. Man, it didn't matter their social status. It didn't matter their economic status. It didn't matter where they were. They were in need. And people pulling up in luxurious cars, wearing all the jewelry, asking for a case of water. Why? Because devastation happens. You may never encounter a, a devastating storm like I'm talking about, but if we look hard enough, if we as the body look hard enough, you will find people in emotional turmoil all over the place. And God is saying, hey, I'm calling you to serve other people. What I love about Jesus and how he illustrates serving is, is that when Jesus is talking about serving, serving doesn't have a contingency plan. If I'm honest when it's easiest to serve somebody when I know there's a direct benefit to me right around the corner. Jesus is, is serving his 12 disciples. He's washing their feet even though he knows that two of them are going to betray him. He says in, in John 13, 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. And yet he still washed their feet, all 12 of them. If I'm Jesus, I'm washing 10 and a half. <laughs> I'm skipping right over Judas because he's gone. He did his own thing. And I'm only washing one of Peter's feet. He denied, but he came back. And so I want to know, hey, I want you to come back. Here's the clean foot. But the dirty foot is to let you know, don't ever deny me again. But Jesus is saying, hey, no, listen, I am going to serve you no matter if it directly benefits me or not. Why? Because I have purpose for you. Because I've come that you may have life and life to the fullest. Jesus, way, the way we serve through Jesus is not pending a contingency plan on what is it in it for me my last point here today is this when you walk in real humility you are favored by God James 4:10 says this humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up Psalm 5:12 says this for you O Lord will bless the righteous with favor you will surround him as with a shield I read this scripture I'm like God's going to lift me up. Yes. Yes. God's got favor for my life. He's going to surround my life with his favor like a shield. Yes. That's great. And then you dissect the word and, wait, God, why, why a shield? Why, why not a crown? A crown is great. A shield means there's going to be some battles. A shield means that I'm going to walk through opposition. A shield means I've got to trust in something. I never forget, it was eight years ago, almost to the day, my wife and I, we were expecting uh, our first children. And I say children because our first pregnancy was twins, a little boy and a little girl, Maddox and Zoe. As the pregnancy progressed, we continue to hear this, this term. Um, we continue to hear the... The, the term high risk. Uh, anytime there's multiples, there's a high risk involved. And so about five months of pregnancy, my wife uh, began to experience some pretty heavy contractions. And so we went to the doctor and, and they said, ma'am, your, your body is ready to go, but we got to keep those babies in that womb as long as we can. And so they put her in the hospital. And I, I think I've got a picture here. Come on, y'all. When mama's in the hospital, so is daddy in the hospital. 
man, the doctors did an incredible job trying to keep those babies in the womb as long as possible. But on July 6, 2009, the twins were born, and uh, they were born two, almost two and a half months premature. They were born, one weighed 4'1", and the other one weighed 4'9". Uh, little Maddox and Zoe, I have a, a picture for you. There's Zoe on the left and little Maddox on the right. After mom had kind of healed up good, we, they discharged her and we went home and we spent the next several weeks commuting back and forth several times a day to spend time with the kids. And as you go, the nurses and doctors were always, always really good at giving us a progress report. And without fail, it seemed as though Zoe was progressing significantly faster than Lil Maddox. And so uh, it came time, one, one day they came in and they, and they had a diagnosis for my son. And the diagnosis was this. Your son Maddox has what we call wimpy white male syndrome. Most times when a doctor gives you a diagnosis, it warrants the question, what? <laughs> but how many of you know wimpy white male syndrome doesn't require a what? It's like, okay, my child's a wimp. <laughs> They couldn't get any more English there. And so parents and family members, they're texting and they're asking, hey, what's, what's the diagnosis? How, what's the progress? How's everybody doing? And Zoe's doing good. She's progressing. But Maddox has wimpy white male syndrome. It became part of our vernacular. It became part of what we were taught. We just, yep, it's just wimpy white male. I mean, we just, we just got to figure it out. I'll never forget one day we, we went home and my wife was just exhausted. Um, and truth be told, so was I. My wife is trying to care for the kids as much as she can, and I'm trying to support her as her husband, trying to support the kids as a father. But, but the truth is, is that there was a lot of things going on on the inside of me. i never forget as she was laying down resting at the house, I went and sat on the couch, and I just began to weep. I, I, was, I was physically exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. I remember putting my hands in my face and questioning God. God, is this, is this because I did something wrong? Is this because there's something in me? Is my child going through this issue because of me? I've heard the words of favor spoken over my life. I remember people speaking words of life and saying, Bo, you're going to be an incredible man of God. You and your wife are going to go on to do incredible. I've heard all those things. But in this moment, in this situation, it just doesn't seem as though my life is surrounded by your favor, God. God, is there something I did wrong? In that moment of transparency with God, I remember him speaking his words to me. Words found in his book for me. He said, Bo, the power of life and death is in your tongue. Man, I remember in that moment, I was like, yes, that's what I needed to hear. My wife woke up, we went to the hospital, and I could not wait to find the last nurse or doctor who told me that my son was a wimpy white male. Just so I could say, hey, listen, I respect your medical Diagnosis, But I'm going to ask you not to call my son a wimp anymore because I believe that he is favored. I believe that he is a man of God. I believe that God has a plan for his life. Come on, show that picture. Doesn't that look like a wimp to you? Huh? Little Maddox and Julian doing karate together. He's healthy. He's going to be eight years old next month. 
what I want us to understand today is this. Is that in that moment, when I had a moment, an encounter with God, it did not change my circumstance. But it changed my posture towards God and the circumstance. When you walk in humility, when you walk in real humility, you understand that God has a plan and he will guide you and he will lead you. Real humility doesn't mean that everything is perfect. Real humility means I trust God and his process. Real humility, I know that if I'm humble, if I humble myself before the Lord, he, like James says, he is going to lift me up.